Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. To hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, the show about fish, fishing and eating fish, show it's always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend. Thank you so much for listening. Listeners who tuned in last week and week before heard my voice and my body falling apart. I got a lot of emails, a lot of uh, texts and phone calls about people wondering how I'm doing. I'm okay. Um, it's going to be about two more weeks before I get my full uh, speaking voice back, but we're going to be just fine. So don't worry. But thank you for checking in. And thanks so much for listening. If you're new to the show, uh, we're here every single week trying to make uh, some good fishy ch- chat for you here at fishnerds.com. And you can get our show notes there and all of our fun happening there. So today on the show, uh, local conservation district, Tin Mountain Conservation, asked me to give an hour-long lecture of what's happening on the ice. So I, I did my presentation uh, just a few hours ago, and I thought you might want to hear it. So today's show is mostly going to be my presentation of life under the ice. Uh, before that, we're going to do some news, and we're going to give you an update on our um, on our fishing contest uh, of our not fishing contest of our uh, fishy call in contest. So why don't we just jump right in and start news, with the news? news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. All right, and this is from Maine, uh, and the headline reads: New Year's resolution: Eat more lake trout. Fisheries biologists in Maine are recommending anglers keep more lake trout. According to the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries, togue are overpopulated in the state and they need to be taken. Uh, the recommended cook- cooking methods include smoking, broiling, and frying. So if you're in Maine, eat a laker. Uh, my favorite recipe for lake trout is uh, lake trout wrapped in bacon, where you just take a chunk of lake trout, wrap it in bacon, stick a toothpick through it, uh, fry it in a pan, a little maple syrup on that, salt, pepper, garlic, till the bacon's crispy, and then you uh, you peel the bacon off and eat the bacon and throw the lake trout in the trash, because lake trout tastes bad. Um, but there's <laughs> there's a lot of recipes out there. A lot of people like them. Smoking is a big one. I'm going to eat one this year and like it. I'm going to fake it if I can. I wish we had an overpopulation here in New Hampshire. Way fun. All right, another story here, and this is from Channel 9 News in Indonesia. Uh, teenager lucky to survive after a fish becomes stuck in his neck. <laughs> a teenager is lucky to be alive after having emergency surgery to remove a snout of a needlefish after it stabbed him through the neck in Indonesia. Mu'aid was fishing with his family on Saturday when the snout of the fish pierced his neck before exiting the other side. Oh, my God. Uh, the fish's mouth was very difficult to remove from the boy's neck with a teenager taken from the Slalom Hospital to another hospital in Makassir City, reported local media. A successful operation saw the fish heads removed, with the teenager reportedly making a full recovery in the hospital. Needlefish have slender, streamlined bodies and a very long jaw with, with very sharp teeth. They are known as insatiable predators, with, they feed mostly on small fish. In June last year, this a 19-year-old Hawaiian man was rushed to the hospital with severe hemorrhaging and liver damage after he was uh, stabbed to the stomach by a needlefish. I, I, who ever heard of this? Uh, that's crazy. I, 
I, I was curious, like, what is the scenario where they get stabbed? Like, is someone else stabbing them, or are they setting the hook too hard and yanking that fish through their own body? It, it seems crazy that they're that sharp. Like, what's who? I don't know. I need to do some needlefish homework. All right, another story from Maine. Uh, Elver lottery to allow a new entrance into Maine's lucrative Elver fishery. This is from Augusta. Nine Maine residents will soon have to chance to join the state's lucrative Elver fishery. And we're not talking about, you know, little men with pointy ears. Uh, the Department of Marine Resources will hold a lottery starting at noon Thursday for the right to apply for an Elver license. The lottery will be available through 4.30 through February 21st, per- providing uh, lottery winners the chance to apply for a license prior to the upcoming season, which starts March 22nd and runs through June 7th. The lottery, authorized by the legislator, um, is available to Maine residents who are at least 15 years old and by the start of the 2020 season and who are eligible to purchase an Elver license uh, because they have not had the right to obtain an Elver license before or have one suspended. At the time the lottery was established, the legislature also set up a cap of 425 licenses. Uh, so these nine are, are available because of people not renewing or getting out of the business. Each new license holder will receive a minimum of four pounds of quota, which is made available from individual quota associated with license. So anyway, so they can now hunt these things. I, I, I don't like it. <laughs> my, this is my editorial. Stop it. Stop eating baby eels. Um, it doesn't make any sense. That's the news. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. All right. So let's talk about this contest. The contest this month is uh, you're going to call 607-378, and you're going to tell us your biggest fishing disaster, or I'll, I'll accept a fail as well. So biggest disaster or fail, 607-378-FISH is the number. Leave us a voicemail. Tell us a good story about a fishing disaster you've had happen to us, to you. And really important, if you do this right, which means you leave your voicemail nice and clear, and then afterwards, take a break, a little breath, and then leave me your name and address, I will mail you a Fish Nerds decal. I've got a whole stack here on my desk that I didn't get in the mail yet because of my crazy week. But uh, so for people from last week's show, you'll be getting your decal soon. Uh, but everyone who calls in will get a decal if you leave me your voicemail, uh, your address on a voicemail after you tell us about your fishing disaster. You, and then I'm going to put all the, I haven't decided if I'm going to do best story or random draw on this yet, but uh, you'll have a chance to win a Fish Nerds prize package, which includes a Fish Nerds baseball cap, some Fish Nerds decals, and some lures from uh, Glasswater Angling for a Better Outdoors. So, And I'll, I'll throw in a few other surprises as well. Um, so get those into us, 607-378-FISH. Uh, as per usual, I am not ending the contest until I have at least 10 entries. So far, I have two. So get on the horn. Give us a call, 607-378-FISH, and tell us your biggest fishing disaster. It's a disaster. All right. So, hey, uh, a lot of listeners to this show are also podcasters, and we love you. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're listening. Uh, but I want to tell you about... Uh, about something that I'm doing right now. So this is actually an advertisement. (laughs) I'm going to try it. Hello, podcast friends. As you know, the Fish Nerds are starting to monetize our podcast. And we decided to partner with Podcorn, P-O-D-C-O-R-N, which is a marketplace for connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host-read ads like the one you're listening to. 
uh, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. We simply log into podcorn.com, and there are dozens of sponsors looking for podcasts to promote their products and services. So what we decided to do was pitch Podcorn for our first ad, which is this one, and it was super easy. I wrote them a little proposal, and they accepted it, and boom, here we are. Podcorn is giving us money to talk about Podcorn. I pitched them. Uh, what we like most about Podcorn is they give podcasters transparency, uh, creative freedom, and full control of how we monetize. So it's, we, we write the ads, we read the ads. Uh, click on the link in the show notes to sign up for Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. And a big fat thanks to Podcorn for Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. Uh, and you can explore sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast by going to podcorn.com today. That's my first ad read. And I appreciate them. And now, let's get on with the heat, with the meat of the show. And this is my discussion at Tin Mountain Conservation. You go to tinmountain.org to learn more, and this is called Life Under the Ice, and and I'm going to give you a little, um, little feedback here before I even begin. Uh, my daughter, Sammy, re- did the audio engineering for this. She was following me around with the microphone, and we had about 40 people uh, show up, which is a good turnout for um, for a conservation discussion in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire, and after doing this, but this is my first time doing a presentation, I want to rewrite the whole thing and do it again. You know, because I want to get practice at it. So if you're listening, um, if you have any feedback, you know, send me an email because I want to rewrite this discussion and and, and do this presentation to, for other people as well. Um, and again, thanks, Tim Mountain, for having me out and uh, letting me talk for an hour. Here's some, the conversation. Hi. So welcome, everybody. I'm Dexter, and I'm a teacher with Tim Mountain, which means I, I get the pleasure to go out into lots of our local schools and to work with kids from K to pre-K and on up to uh, high school, where we've got teachers working in both uh, Kennet and Freiburg um, and on up into Berlin and Gorham as well. Um, can we just quickly have you raise your hand if you're a Tim Mountain member? Fantastic. Thank you so much for being a Tim Mountain member because that is one of the things, that, that is one of the ways that we fund all the work that we do in the schools, or the work that our interns do here, doing great science around the property, so much of our work. Thanks to members and the volunteers that do so much, including chopping and stacking all the wood that's warming us up right now in this room. Um, let's see, a few other things to tell you uh, before I introduce tonight's presenter. We've got a few events coming up here. This is a, this will be our second month of doing an environmental book group. This, this month is going to be The Wild Trees, and that's uh, January 30th. We've got uh, Patterns in the Snow, uh, Tracking Exploration, Classroom Session, and then a Field Session. That'll be February 6th and then February 8th. Um, these things you probably get in your email now and then from us. I just haven't seen it yet coming up for the, the month ahead, so I'll just tell you. Um, the Eco Forum on February 13th, that's when we get to come here about lunchtime, and, and there's pizza. It's about trout stream restoration project that we've been working on for a good long time. Um, summer times with interns, you'd really enjoy hearing about that. Uh, Russ Lenoy just gave me a stack of these, <laughs> Green Energy Times. He says there's a piece in here about Tin Mountain. About the energy team with our next project. Great. So there's a stack of them on the back table, and you'll come. I'm curious, how many people 
uh, have seen the Green Energy Times. <laughs> Their hand prints are also available here at the local grocery several places around the country. Very well done. All of these programs that we do here, what we call our Nature Program Series, they are thanks to the sponsorship of the Bank of New Hampshire, Hancock Lumber, and Ragged Mountain Equipment. So thanks to those folks. Tell them thanks when you go in there next time. And uh, I'm really excited about tonight's program because as I go out to all the schools that I visit and we talk about plants and animals and rocks and weather, but kids are often really curious about what's happening underneath the ice. So uh, <laughs> it's something I know almost nothing about and uh, really great to learn about it from Clay Groves, who is our, uh, what is it, executive? Chief executive. Chief executive fish nerd. Round of applause, <laughs> please, for Clay Groves. All right, welcome. I'm, I am, first of all, I'm, I'm not totally surprised how many people came because I'm, I'm actually surprised we're gonna have like 10 times this amount of people because ice is one of the most exciting things on earth. And for me, it's a magical thing. And I believe the, the only reason that we have life on top of the ice is because of the way ice is formed. And we're gonna talk a lot about ice tonight and I'm excited about it. But I wanna talk a little bit about what, what I do. So I wanna tell you, what, what is a fish nerd? That's me. We're all nerdy about something, right? We all have our thing that we're really, really into. What are you really into? What is it? Hiking. So you're a hiking nerd, right? You're obsessed with hiking, right? We all have that one. What are you nerdy about? You're a dog nerd, right? So we all have, and Russ, you're nerdy about compost. And yeah, driveway grading and all that. You're a dirt nerd. So we're all nerdy about something. I just happen to really love fish. And I'm going to tell you why I love fish and why I love talking about fish. When we talk about animals and biology, we talk about things like, uh, like, like if I ask you what is a mammal, you could probably give me three traits that all mammals have in common. Tell me one, just yell it out. All mammals have what in common? Fur. Fur, good. All mammals have? Live birth. Live birth. All mammals have? Milk. All mammals are, what'd you say? Warm-blooded, Warm right? We know those to be things. If we did it with reptiles, you could do the same thing. If we did it with amphibians, you could do the same thing. Now I want someone to tell me one thing, one trait that all fish have in common. Just give me one, I dare you. What is it? Gills. No, not all fish have gills. So um, not what, where you live is not a trait. Trait are physical things, right? So we, we don't say all mammals live on ground, right? We say all mammals have teeth, right? So who said fins? Not all fish have fins. So not all fish have scales. What's that? They do, but we don't look at our lo where we live is not a trait, right? That's just where we happen to live. Uh, not all fish have eyes. Not all fish have backbones. Yeah. Uh, not all fish have gills. Uh, any other ones? Uh, they all reproduce, but everything alive does that. So that's not a specific trait to fish. Right? But if you said all fish lay eggs, you could try that. Nope, some have live birth. Right, sharks? How, there are even, so, so there are fish that are warm-blooded, and there are fish that are cold-blooded. There are fish that have skills, skills, <laughs> gills, and fish that don't have gills. There are fish that have eyes and who don't have eyes, fish that have backbones and fish that don't have backbones. There are fish that even can produce milk for their babies. Like fish are something that we all have in common. It's that common animal that, that I think connects everything for me. Like that's why fish are so exciting. 
because there's nothing special about a fish. They were categorizing stuff, and they went, I don't know what it is, I guess it's a fish. Put it in the bucket. And then we moved on. But when you guys think about fish, usually you're thinking about bony fishes. So when you're talking about gills and a backbone and all that stuff, you're not wrong if you're doing bony fishes. But you get like sea lampreys and hagfish and all kinds of other stuff. It gets crazy. But I love fish. And I love talking about them. I don't know if you can tell. Um, and I make a podcast about fish called The Fish Nerds. I've been doing that since 2011. Probably the oldest podcast about fish on the internet. Um, I never get tired of talking about it. Um, and so if you, if you want to hear me talk for about 240 hours, that's how many episodes I have, <laughs> you can listen to me talk about them for 240 hours. Um, the Fish Nerds podcast is available anywhere you get your podcast. Um, so if you're on Apple or Spotify or Pandora or just the internet, go to fishnerds.com, push play, you got it. You also may have heard my voice on New Hampshire Public Radio. I, I partner with them a lot. I do help with their outside in programming which is their outdoor podcast um, last winter we did a program called life under the ice called one of their 10 by 10 series and after doing that i got so excited about talking about life under the ice i i talked to tim mountain and said hey can i come and do this um, with him i also am on boston public radio frequently and i'm also a dj on wmwv radio 93.5 fm so you can hear me on weekends talking there as well um, and i run one of my jobs is i run a fishing guide service so I am on the ice all winter with clients, teaching people how to ice fish, and I bring my science with me because I love talking about it, which is the nerdy part of my business. Uh, and in the summer, I do uh, Tin Mountain nature cruises. On Thursday nights, we do a nature cruise series on Silver Lake. You've been on the boat? We have a great time. We learn about all of nature on Silver Lake and have a really fun time. Um, so, uh, Sammy is my audio engineer tonight. This is being recorded for the podcast. So if you like this and you want to tell your friends about it, you can share it with them and say, oh, I was there when they recorded this. So, good job, Sam. That's my daughter. That's also her in the picture there. All right. And this slide doesn't work, so I have to break out of this and go to the internet because I'm going to make you watch a commercial. I want you to get who I am because it'll make the presentation more fun um, by understanding me. Nerds Minute presented by Andy Ski and Snowboard Group 302 in Bartlett. Andy, we make good seeing great. This is the Fish Nerd Minute about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Dave. And I'm Claire. Hey, Clay, do you like to dig? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm talking about digging for fish with a little dig and a rod. It's great prices. Oh, you know, most anglers prefer setting up tip-ups. But when we're going to catch fish, we dig. There are lots of ways to dig. Fast, slow, no movement, called dead sticking. All will work at different times. The key is to experiment. Fish can be anywhere in the water column. So start at the bottom and slowly work your way up. Don't spend more than 10 minutes in any one spot and move on with no fish in there. Some people bring flashers on the ice. Like this? <laughs> you know, sonars are called flashers too. Yeah, so get on the ice and try digging today. For more Fish Nerds fun, you can check out the Fish Nerds podcast on iTunes or fishnerds.com. Till next time, we're going fishing. Yeah. Just this bunch of silliness I'm up to all the time. And I, think, I think everything is fun, including science. I used to be a science teacher at Kennett Middle School. So, ice is magic. And it, it's a very special thing. Any, any science people in the room? Okay. So, can anyone tell me? Why does, why does ice float? 
Because it doesn't make sense that it floats. You had it back there. Yeah. It's less dense than water. But does so? Is there any other solid that's less dense in its solid form than its liquid form? And it's kind of a magical thing. So let's talk about ice here for a second. How do I do this? So if you look at water molecules in the liquid form, you know you got your H2O right there. They're kind of scattered all over the place, right? It's very liquidy, as liquid should be. It takes up the space of a container it's going to be in. Now, when ice freezes, and this is the only, the only molecules that do this, when ice freezes, it gets very organized and, and orderly, right? And it gets all together, and you get these kind of like hexagon structures that actually have air gaps in it, making it less dense as a solid than a liquid, keeping the ice on top. What would happen, do you think, if this didn't happen? What if ice acted like every other solid, and as it froze, sank? What would happen? What do you think would happen? Any ideas? Say it again. Ice would be on the bottom. What would not be on the bottom? Anything. <laughs> right? Ice would go right to the bottom. Those lakes would freeze from the bottom up, and they would freeze solid. And Solid ice is very, very bad for plants, animals, and fishes. So the fact that we get ice capping a lake as opposed to growing up in the bottom is kind of a magical thing. And it's a unique property of water and one of the, I think, the most fascinating properties of water. And it's important to know this when we're talking about ice growing and, and being safe on ice as well. I think it's important. So we're talking about ice safety and then we're gonna get into life under the ice. Because my hope is that you're gonna see this thing and you're gonna wanna go out on the ice and explore it. And if you do, I want you to be safe. And I'm going to have a pointer here. So, if it's less than two inches, actually less than four inches, stay off the ice. Most ice in the valley right now is well over four inches of ice. But check as you go anyway. Um, if it has five or six inches, you can bring a snowmobile on it. The recommendation, eight to 12, a small car. Don't do that, but you can. 12 to 13, a truck. If you get to 30 or 40, you can bring your ad ad out. And if you get over 100, you can bring Godzilla with you and then you're totally safe. Um, and the nice thing about ice safety is, is it gets um, so strong as it grows because of the way those molecules are forming and because it's floating. So ice isn't supporting you like, you know, it's not like a bridge of ice with air under it. It's ice with water. The water's actually supporting you and you're floating on top of the ice. Even on your, on your very best day on the ice, when you think you're on something solid, you are floating. And every so often you're gonna feel the entire lake kind of move. Right? We've all, anyone ever hear a lake moving? It makes that great sounds everybody on the ice as the ice grows and expands. Cracks. I love that sound. My dog will not go on the ice because that's not. All right, so from safety equipment, if you're going out for the first time, that's one of the most important pieces of equipment you can bring with you. It's a spud bar. As you're walking, just check the ice in front of you. They're usually less than 20 bucks to buy one. Don't throw rocks on the ice to test its thickness, it doesn't work. It also ruins people's ice fishing gear. Um, and then the other thing you should have with you, first of all, besides a friend on shore, the rope, um, is some ice safety picks. And one of the things I do, when I, I, I go on the ice starting in November, and when I go on, I wear this safety jacket. This is actually this is a Coast Guard certified PFD, personal flotation device. So if I fall through with this on, I can't sink, plus my pants, actually I wear floaty pants as well, so my pants, I can't, I, I end, if I fall through I end up floating on my back on the ice, 
then to get out, if I fall in, which I don't typically fall in, uh, this comes with uh, ice spikes that you just jam in the ice and you can climb out with. They just poke out through that little hole there. So safety is really important. So if you're on the ice, make sure that you have something with you just in case. And, and then we, we always talk about ice as a safety as a relative term, which means there's no such thing as truly safe ice. So you're always responsible for yourself. So you should check as you go if you don't know. Um, if you see someone drive out with a truck in front of you, it's probably safe to walk out in that spot. So it's a good way to gauge its thickness. But when you get into midwinter, you get pretty good. This year, the ice cream has been really weird because we haven't had any cold weather. Even the last few days where it's been cold, it hasn't been sustained cold. Usually by mid to late December, we've had four or five days where it's been sub-zero at night and like highs in a single digit in a day. And that locks our legs up and gets it going for us. It was 60 degrees a week and a half ago. And we lost a lot of ice. A lot of places that normally this time of year are safe are not safe. My ice shack sank two-thirds through the ice. I had to have it rescued. It cost me 500 bucks. I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but it didn't sink in thin, in thin ice. It sank because it heated up and it melted through the ice. So be safe if you go out. Um, and the other way to really know you're safe is to go out with a professional who knows the ice. And they can keep you safe. All right. And some of the tools I use for ice fishing. I'm not here doing an ice fishing seminar, but I like these tools I use also for uh, if I'm going out checking the ice. I always like to have a shelter to get warm. Hypothermia ruins your day. So I bring this portable tent out. This is insulated. It's got a heater in it. We were out the other day. It was 13 below zero. We had the heater on there. It was probably 80 degrees in there. We were very comfortable um, when we were inside. And then I bring, I bring an ice auger, drill holes in the ice. I don't like, I don't use gas augers. I just like the electric ones. This is just a, my household drill on the bit. Works really well. I like to use an ice fishing flasher, which is a sonar. It allows me to see what's happening under the ice. And it's really fun to see how much is actually, there's a lot of movement under there. This, this display shows you all the action, which is great. And if I really want to see what's happening, <coughs> and I'm fishing with people who are patient, I bring this on the ice, and that has a little underwater camera. And I can look at the fishes and animals under there and see what they're up to. And it's really fun. And it, it, especially when you're not catching any fish, you can at least watch the fish not eat <laughs> really hard time. So I love that. And this, this, this mix makes a day really cool. Um, and of course, fishing rods. We use little ice fishing rods. And I don't set traps and use tip-ups because I don't like when fish swallow the bait and get gut hooked and bleed a lot. And, I don't like killing fish, I'm not going to eat them, right? Right. So those are the tools of the trade, but we're going to talk about the ice. And we're going to take a top-down approach. So you walk out on, a, uh, let's say you're heading out to Silver Lake in Madison, and you walk out on the lake, you're on top of the ice. Where, in it, where is the coldest place you could be on a lake? Where's that? On top of the ice, right? Because how cold was it this morning if you were out fishing? Anybody see the weather today? Anybody? <laughs> it was probably, what, five degrees this morning? Yeah. Right, that's cold. Does it ever get to be five degrees below the ice? Nope, never. Where, how cold can it be, Sam, below the ice? The coldest it can possibly be? 32 degrees, right? Because that's the freezing point of ice. So the coldest place on the ice is the ice, 32 degrees. And as soon as you get through the ice into the liquid part of the water, 
guess what happens? Well, you, okay, you, fair enough, you sink. But what else happens? This is, it warms up. You ever jump in a lake in the summertime, you dive down, and you find that kind of cold water spot about six feet down or eight feet down? That's called a thermocline. So in the summertime, warm water's on top, cold water's on the bottom. In the wintertime, the lake flips upside down. And the coldest is on the top, because that ice is freezing, it's making those crazy patterns and rising, and the warm water's on the bottom. And so here's what we're looking at on a lake. Please, I made this graphic. Thank you. <laughs> I worked really hard. It took minutes to do. Um, so, so you see the ice. Uh, above the ice, it's negative six degrees. As soon as you hit the ice, you're at zero. This is, this is Celsius, this science, which is 32. And then as you go down, you get to four degrees Celsius on the bottom, and that's where a lot of the action is. Anyone roughly know what four degrees Celsius is? Just about, just about 40. Yeah, about 38, 39 degrees down there. So it's comparatively, it's like it was outside today, this afternoon, it was like 40 degrees outside. And that's how it is in the bottom of the lake. And it's really, this is what's really magical about the lake in the wintertime, and really exciting for us. So, so I'm gonna take you down, right down through the layers of the water column and get you down there. So, just below the ice, we find what's called ice beards. Anyone ever hear about ice beards before? This is a real thing. So when ice freezes, another cool property of ice, when ice freezes and it forms that great pattern of hexagons, it forces impurities out of itself. So ice is a very pretty, is a fairly pure substance. Yeah, that's why in the ocean, if you're in the ocean, you find a big glacier floating out there, or not glacier, uh, what are they called, Sam? Iceberg, thank you. Th that's fresh water. Because when it freezes, it forces the salt out. In a freshwater pond system, when the lake freezes, it forces bacteria out, it force, forces dirt out, salts, um, it forces um, algaes, zooplankton, phyto phytoplankton, all that stuff gets forced out, and it gets forced out just below the surface of the ice, where, where the water meets the ice. In fact, technically the water, liquid water, doesn't touch the bottom of the ice on a lake. There is a layer of bacteria and phytoplankton and zooplankton between the ice and the water called an ice beard. And it can grow to about a foot long um, if you're in the right conditions. In New Hampshire, if you did an ice core, you would find maybe a millimeter thick layer of this stuff on a, on a really thick layer. And that's what it looks like. And that's just all the smudge that was in the water that got forced out below the ice. Um, in the springtime, if you're ice fishing and you, you'll get some warm water coming up through the hole, a lot of that smudge will come up on top of the ice. You'll see it in the puddles on the ice. And that's the ice beard's melting. Does it on my ice rink? You've seen it? Yeah. Yeah. It's a real thing. I, I learned about that last year. I saw I was excited to tell you about it. <laughs> but it's really cool. And that's life right there. That's all your phytoplankton, zooplankton, bacteria, all kinds of cool stuff living and growing on the bottom of the ice. So that's really cool. How do you guys be really excited about that? I'm excited about it. All right. <laughs> All right, and then just below that, you get below the phytoplanktons, and then we start finding our first fishes. Anybody know that fish? It's a rainbow trout. Those are non-native trout. They're from California originally, brought here in the 1890s, just, just to be caught by rich people in the rivers around here. They were stocked. They, they stocked New Hampshire with fishes because we killed all the fishes by building dams 
and then we had to bring fish in and recover our fisheries. Um, but, but a lot of fish, this is called a cold water species of fish, a lot of fish love super cold water, right? Cold water fishes like trout and salmon love that. And what rainbow trout will do is they'll cruise just below the surface of the ice with their dorsal fin actually touching that bottom layer of the ice and they're looking for food because there's some minnows and smelt who also love that cold water and are cruising around there. And they'll chase those smelt into really, really shallow water. You get like four or five of these trout chasing these school of fish into the corners under the lake and they crowd them in there and they gorge themselves on these little fishes using the ice as a hunting grounds. And the other thing that these fish really like the, is what the ice does for them, right? We have bald eagles around here, right? Especially in the wintertime, we see tons of them around. But we have bald eagles who are normally pescivores, fish eaters, have a real hard time hunting fish in the wintertime. How come? You can't get to them, right? Because the ice is capped over. So these fish who normally would be hard to find and elusive now can spread out and enjoy the whole lake. And these are top predators. Nothing's, there's nothing bigger than these guys out here. So nothing's going to eat them. They have that kind of freedom. And so ice fishing for like rainbow trout is a lot of fun this time of year because they could be anywhere in the lake. But the, I, I usually catch them just below the ice surface. And I usually catch them in water that's a foot or two deep. Um, but I've caught them in 60 feet of water at the surface and I've caught them in two feet of water at the surface. And they just cruise that. And salmon will do the same thing. Brook trout will do the same thing. Brown trout, they all kind of really like to do that thing. And, and those are, they're called cold water fish because they just love that nice cold water. And cold water, like 33 degree water, has a very high level of dissolved oxygen in it, and those fish love that, that they can breathe so good. They're just so happy to keep doing that. And then we go down a little bit, and as we're looking in that same surface, subsurface water, we start seeing some invertebrates even. I've been ice fishing, and right in my ice fishing hole, I had this thing float up. You know what that is? It looks like a praying mantis, but it lives under the water. So not a praying mantis. It's a damselfly nymph, so you're close. That came up my ice fishing hole. By the way, if you take one of these things and put it under a microscope and put your iPhone on the lens of the microscope, you can take these pictures. I just, just put my iPhone on the, on the lens and took that. Came out pretty good, I, I was pretty happy with that. It took like 30 tries. It didn't happen the first try, but I got it. And then I also had this happen. Anybody know what that is? What is it? No? Dexter, what is that? It is a giant water bug. That thing was about two and a half inches long. And they'll come up, they're active under the ice. They're hunting right under the ice. And they're looking for those minnows, same as the salmon are. Well, that's um, the, the black cable there. That's this black cable. <laughs> from a transducer from, this, from the uh, thing. So it's confusing, but that gives you an idea how big he is. Uh, by the way, if you're ever looking for a quick meal, they are delicious, so feel free to fry them up. Um, but that's a giant water bug. So you, you have these invertebrates are really active even in the wintertime. And they're active at the water surface, and they're active down in the muck in the bottom, too. If you scooped muck out of the bottom, you'd find dragonfly nymphs and damselflies and all kinds of stuff. So it's fun to see that there's really things happening down there. And then a lot of fish like to live, which we call, in suspension. They're not going to be on the bottom. Not in the top, they're just right in the middle. These schools of fish that cruise around the lake. They like that middle temperature of water. And some typically the fish we see around this part of the state that do that is black crappie. 
which are these guys over here, um, and white perch. Love that. And you're gonna find those big schools of fish just cruising around the lake. Does anyone here ice fish at all? Sam does. Do you guys ice fish? You've got, and so you'll, you'll see, you've, have you done this kind of fishing for crappies? And you see them. They're not, they're just right in the middle. And, and you have to find them because they crew, they don't stay in one place. They're very inconvenient fish. They, you put your, you, you go through all the effort to building your ice shack and the fish move. So it's, it's a, they're, they're terrible. But they're fun to catch. And if you know this about them, you can catch them. And they're cruising around and, they're, and they'll go up the water column and chase those little fish. Or they'll go down and chase little fishes. But they prefer to be right in that middle temperature of water, which is about 35, 36 degrees. And that's their happy spot. Incidentally, white perch are not a native New Hampshire fish. Those were introduced in the 1900s. And those are native to New Hampshire like as an ocean fish. So they're not even in a perch family. They're not even close to being a perch, but their name is white perch. They are actually a temperate bass, a true bass, like a striped bass. So they're born in freshwater, live in the ocean, migrate to freshwater spawn, but we landlock them um, for anglers' fun. That's why they live here. And, and also probably one of the best tasting freshwater fish. We also have black crappies, also not native to New Hampshire, but fun to catch nonetheless. Um, those guys live in suspension. And then, this is a picture from the underwater camera, trying to take a shot. You get down a little bit below them, and you get into your bluegills, and your pumpkin seeds, and all your sunfishes there. It's fun to look at. And then below that, we get down to the bottom, right? And we call this the spa on the lake. This is the part of the lake where everything seems to be. And if you're going out in the lake looking for life, the best place to start is all the way at the bottom. And this is where we're gonna see the most diverse, the most diverse of animals, plants, and fishes. I'm not gonna go, I'm gonna go through some of the fishes we see in the Mount Washington Valley at the bottom first. So, anyone know that fish? As a white sucker. Who, who said that? The one on the left? That's me. <laughs> That's a white sucker. Got that, you know, down in Danforth Bay in Freedom. That was a big one. I thought it was the biggest bass I ever caught. It was just this huge sucker. And these guys are native to New Hampshire, and they're, um, they're one of the major forage fish for lake trout in the state. They just, I guess they're really delicious to a lake trout. I've eaten them, um, and I don't think they're delicious, but lake trout do, so they can have them. But they're fun to catch, and they're weird looking. They're just swimming around the bottom, sucking in mud and dirt, and rolling rocks over and tasting stuff. What's that? Mostly the flavor. Um, so I, I went on a quest back in 2011 to catch and eat every kind of freshwater fish in the state. There are 48 catchable species of fish in the state, and I caught and ate 47 of them. And I, I did. And, and this one, the flavor was fine. It was actually the texture. It was kind of mushy. Uh, not just the, the texture was kind of mushy. Uh, flavor tasted like everything else. Tastes like fish, but. The best tasting freshwater fish? Uh, walleye. Walleye, yeah. You're right. And not just the, not the fillets from the walleye either. What part of the walleye is the best? The cheeks. The cheeks, yeah. The walleye cheeks were the best part. They're like, like freshwater scallops. You just carve them right out, fry them in butter, and pop them in your mouth. Delicious. I did not eat the cheeks of the white one. Yes, right. <laughs> Depending. They have, fish have a lot of names. We could, I could do an hour on just bad fish names. All right, anyone know this fish? This is, this is a yellow perch, and this is a native fish to New Hampshire. These guys do belong here. 
There's a lot of people who ice fish who hate these things. They chuck them up on the lake and feed the eagles. I don't support that kind of behavior. If you're gonna kill a fish, eat it. Um, they're delicious to eat, but they're also really fun to catch. And if you're bringing kids out in the ice, targeting these guys is a ton of fun because you'll be catching fish all day long. This one was 17 inches long. It's the biggest one I've ever caught. It's my personal best. But they're fun. And these guys form these huge schools under the ice and they hunt like in giant, almost like packs. And if you ever watch them underwater, once, if, if, once one fish spies bait, they all go in after it. That was in Danforth Bay in Freedom. Yeah, he's still there, I let him go. So I took his photo, put him back in the water, got my trophy patch, gone. Um, there's a lot of big ones down Dan Danforth is my favorite place to fish, if you want to know. I love it. Yeah. That's a big one. 14 would make it a trophy, like one of the biggest in the state. 17 is just massive. Um, they, they, don't get, they don't get a lot bigger than that in the state. If you go down to Australia, they have a, a similar species called a reddy, and they get to 24 inches, but these guys, it's hard to find them that big around here. So we love them, and they're just so cool, and they blend in perfectly with their environment because they get those tiger stripes. Really fun fish. What else we got? Bluegill, right? <laughs> That's a state record right there. Sometimes we bring a Barbie doll out and... <laughs> Try to get a good picture, but she's wearing my, my hat, so it counts. So bluegill again, not native, but most kids' first fish. We love them. We love bluegills, and those guys will form. Those will get mixed in schools with um, other with, with pumpkin seeds and with yellow perch and pick up pick away at them. Are you saying they're not native? No. They are, but they're from this. Yeah, we got them from Kentucky, I think, originally, and they brought them up when they brought black bass to New Hampshire back in the 1890s. They brought pumpkin seeds, bluegills, black crappies, um, and every other member of the sunfish family up with them to feed them, to feed the bass. Because pumpkin seeds and bluegills, and those guys spawn twice a season, and they're so small they don't compete with bass for food. And so they were brought here as a forage fish for that. Um, this is a largemouth bass, also not native. That's a Danforth Bay largemouth. That's that kid's first fish he ever caught. Through the ice, but not just, not just through the ice, but first fish ever fishing with me. Uh, and he was fishing with, he was fishing with this fishing rod right here, with this tiny, tiny little jig on it, tipped with one maggot. When you want to catch, so, so one thing that happens in the wintertime to most animals is when you get cold, metabolism slows down, right? So animals who are usually eating large food are now hunting smaller things. So this is a, probably a seven pound bass up here which is a huge bass for New Hampshire, and it ate the smallest of foods. And I've watched this on the video camera. These fish will swim up to the bait, and you can watch them on the camera, and they will sniff the bait, look at the bait, push it with their nose, watch it go back and forth and kind of fin, and then just really lightly bite it. And if you're not paying attention, even a big fish like that, you won't even feel it. I've even seen pickerel, which are another native, they are native fish in New Hampshire. I've seen pickerel, bite the bait off of a tiny jig. I'm watching it on the camera, I'm holding the fishing rod, I still can't feel it happen. They're just delicate sometimes, pink, pull it right off. So these, these fish are slowing down in the winter time. So if it's summer you're casting, you're jigging fast, in the winter you're just kind of slow. Take your time, relax, you know, have some fun with it. But yeah, that's a largemouth bass and we don't catch them like that every day. Um, I've never personally caught a bass that big. 
So that was through a six inch hole in the ice and we let it go afterwards and it was a challenge stuffing it back the hole. We had to like pile sticks on it. I'm, I'm just kidding. But we, had, we, we were able to release it, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was, we're, well, we used three pound test on these rods. So that fish is pulling and, and it is dragging line out like crazy. And that kid just really slowly, quietly stayed with it the whole time. And then let it go and stayed with it. And of course, I'm there with them and I know something major happened because the rod is bent like this. And, and when it comes to the hole, he didn't lift it out of the hole. I stuck my hand down through the ice and grabbed it by its jaw and pulled it through the hole because there's no way on three pound test you're gonna pull that, because we were on two feet of ice there. So you have two feet of this narrow column of water that you just can't pull that fish through. So. Yeah, yeah. And then that, we took the picture and let it go all within 30 seconds. And he got a uh, New Hampshire trophy patch for that fish and he got in the record books for it, which is nice. It, well, theoretically, although I've seen people out there catch fish like that and eat them and it kind of hurts my heart a little bit. On that one? No, that kid was fishing on a bucket with no sonar, no camera, away from everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that one, I, I, I don't know, it's a crazy fish. I'm, and I'm still fish jealous. The hat he's wearing, I was wearing at the time, I gave him my hat. I'm like, you get my hat, I don't care. So. And then, anyone know that fish? That's hard to see. That's a New Hampshire native char. And it's a, it's a lake trout. And that picture's not very good, but that's actually Tony Zor, the news guy from, uh, from the local radio station. Uh, I took him out. He was doing a story on ice fishing. And while we were live on the radio, I was describing how to catch a lake trout. And he hooked that while I was, while I was describing it. It was like that perfect timing thing. And um, we let that one go too. But that's a native fish. Lake trout are, are, we don't, when we talk about native trouts, we talk about brook trout a lot in New Hampshire. But lake trout are also are native. And they're... And brook trout and lake trout are actually technically char, not trout. So it's, I don't know the difference, but someone told me that once, and I still can't figure out the difference. And then this fish I really want to talk about. Anybody know this gruesome looking thing? It's called a cusk, yeah. Or a burbot, or a mariah, or a lawyer, or a lingcod, or loda loda, or. Uh, lawyer. There's like 30 different names depending on where you live for this fish. And this is this fish I'm going to talk a little bit about because I love this fish so much. Oops, the slide didn't come through. Um, this fish is only active in the wintertime under the ice. In fact, um, in the summertime, they're rarely caught anywhere because they hide down the mud and they almost hibernate in the summertime. Dexter, do you remember the science word for summer hibernators? Yes, so it's called estivation. So this fish goes through like, it's, it's, it, its heart rate slows down, blood flow slows down, and it sleeps all summer long. And as soon as the lake freezes over, and the bottom of the lake temperature gets about 38 degrees, it wakes up. And it wakes up with two things in mind. It wants food, and it wants to make more fish. And it's excited about both those things. Uh, and this is actually the only species of freshwater cod in the world. And it's a true cod. So the same cod you see in the ocean. There's a whole bunch of species of codfish, and this is one of them. And they live in deep, in deep glacial lakes all over the world. And, and they do the same thing in every big lake. 
and there's two ways to catch these. You can go out at nighttime and you can jig for them, or you can set what's called cusp lines up, and you put six pieces of wood on the ice with a line and a dead piece of, piece of fish on the bottom, and they come eat them up and you pick them up. And uh, this, is, this is in Silver Lake, this one. And they get to be about three feet long, and they taste like cod, but if you boil them in a little red wine vinegar and salt, and then dip them in drawn butter, and if you were blindfolded, you would think you were eating lobster. Yeah, they call them poor man's lobster in a lot of places. Um, but so they, they eat from November, December until about mid-February. And then when the days get a little bit longer, then they go on their spawning runs. And they go into about 12 feet of water. They find these big rocky shoals and they have these giant slimy cusk orgies under the ice. And there'd be just hundreds of them all sliming each other and just making new fish like crazy. Are you learning something? So this, this is how fish make babies. They just slime all over the place drop all their eggs, and then in March, when the ice starts melting out and the water warms up, they just go back to sleep again. You know, and occasionally someone will pick one up in the summertime, but it's really, really rare. And so for a lot of people, like this is the fish they wait for for winter time. Uh, in, out in Minnesota, they have giant, they call them eel pouts out there. They have giant eel pout festivals where thousands of people will go out on a lake at one time and see how many of these guys they can catch in one day. Um, but a really cool fish and a really unique fish and being the only freshwater cod fish I think makes a really a neat cold water fish that no one seems to ever hear about or know about because it's under the ice. Yep. And then of course we have plant under the ice. And I don't know I don't know all the plants' names and stuff, but a lot of people think that as soon as the ice freezes, all the plants die and photosynthesis ends and it's game over. But it's not true. Um, especially early on. Once the ice lakes freeze over, as long as light can penetrate the ice, these plants keep producing oxygen. And what happens in a lot of lakes, and not in New Hampshire as much as others, but a lot of lakes out west, um, especially if there's not a lot of rivers coming into them, is these plants all die because the lakes freeze, we get a whole bunch of snow on top, and it blocks the light out, and then the plants die. And when a plant dies, it starts to rot, right? So when it's green, it's making photosynthesis, it's making oxygen, and what happens to plants when they're rotting? What are they doing? What is it? They create nutrients, but also, but they also, they also consume oxygen. So then they start competing as they're rotting. They're competing uh, with the fishes for oxygen. And out west, um, not western New Hampshire, but out in western part of the country, a lot of the small ponds out there have giant fish kills, where this will happen, and every fish in the lake can die. And they work in the so the fishing game and conservation districts. A lot of times out there, will actually go out and drill holes in the ice and have bubblers to try and keep that water oxygenated. I've seen, you can go on YouTube, you can find videos of this happening where there's so little oxygen in the lake, ice fishermen will go out and they'll drill a hole in the lake, water will come through the hole, and a thousand yellow perch will pop up to the water. They're just dying for air and they come right up uh, off top of the ice because there's no oxygen down there. New Hampshire's great because most of our lakes um, are stream fed and so there's oxygen coming in like crazy. So we don't see the big fish kills in our state. It's not impossible, it doesn't happen very often. Um, but so you have plants down there, you've got macroinvertebrates, you've got fishes, you've got all kinds of action down there under the ice. And you'll even see, um, if you drop a camera down, you'll even see like scuds and um, all kinds of little creatures floating in front of the camera you can't even pick out all over the water column. So that's what's happening under the lakes in New Hampshire. And I've got time for questions and answers. I want to have a conversation with you rather than talk at you. So uh, yeah. You could tell a nice joke.
Sam wants to tell a nice joke. Sam. <laughs> Big finish. <laughs> so, so now I'll answer any questions you have about life under the ice, about fish, about equipment, whatever you got, I'm here. Yes? Could you talk about your flasher a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, so this is an ice fishing flasher. And there's a lot of companies that make them. They all, are, they all work the same way. This is actually an analog device. I actually have some antiques versions of this that work exactly the same. And what happens is, see the lights in there? There's, a, there's actually a spinning wheel in here. And as that wheel spins, it's making some sounds and it's sending a sonar signal down through this little puck here. And it's the same, same way that bats work, right? They send out a little signal, it flashes down, called a flasher because that sound flashes down to the bottom of the lake. It bounces back up and it's picked up by the same, by the same puck and it reads on the screen here. And so what you'll see when this is in the water, and unfortunately it's not in the water, is you'll be able to pick out where the bottom of the lake is, where the top of the lake is, and any line you see in between is either a fish or it's your bait. And so you can tell what's happening underwater. And when I'm fishing with kids, this is great fun, or adults too, because you can see your bait and the fish. If you can match those two things up, usually you can catch it. So you, you learn a lot about fish behavior by watching how they react on the screen. You know it's a line. It is, yeah. Yeah, and it's way fun. With a circular screen. With a circular screen. Even the modern, they make modern um, fish finders that are all digital now. They don't need, they don't need a, there's no spinning wheels in them or anything, but they still have a circular screen because ice fisher people are so stuck in our dumb culture that we got used to looking at circles and we're going to always look at circles, even though a vertical screen makes a lot more sense. <laughs> there's no reason for a circle unless it has a wheel spinning in it. But ice fishermen are stubborn and we stick with our old tech. But it works, and it's way fun. And yeah, you sit it right on top of the ice, and you drop that puck down your ice fishing hole. That's it. I usually drill a separate hole for these. Um, we have eight of these for the guides, for my guide service, so when you're fishing with us, usually everyone gets their own sonar, so everyone's happy. No, this is a circle. There's a, there's a wheel spinning in here with a light with lights on it. And you can't see it working because it's, it's not underwater. It will show you, so this part will turn all red. There's nothing over there, and then the bottom will be here. And there'll be little red lines or green lines, and that'll be the fish of your bait. And once you see it once in the water, it all makes perfect sense to work. Yeah. It's, it's impossible to show it to you without touching water. <laughs> and, and people take their ice fish, their fish lines on their boats, and they use them on the ice all winter, too. Just, it's fun to see what's happening underwater. That's why we do it. It would be really boring otherwise. Yeah? What happens to the fishes or to? Yeah, so in the fall before it freezes, the lake does what's called a turnover. And at that time, you have equal distribution of cold and all the water is one temperature, top to bottom. In the spring, when the ice melts, same thing happens. 
it turns back over again. And what happens when that happens is nothing makes any sense at all and the fish scatter all over the place because the temperatures <laughs> all over the place. Especially those are the two hardest time to catch fish is in like early November and then in April. Those, those two months are really challenging to catch anything except for salmon, uh, which you know, in November is closed season and in April it starts um, because salmon are gonna be going on the surface because they want that fresh sun in the morning. But yeah, that's what, so it just turns right back over again and you end up with cold on the bottom and warm on top. But it takes about three, four weeks for it all to turn over. And in the meantime, you get that water temperature that's consistent. And I usually don't bother fishing. Yeah? Have there been any uh, fish that are not native to New Hampshire that were introduced that have come up now? So the, the way that fishing game defines an invasive species uh, is if it has a negative uh, economic impact. And so unlike Wimpasaki, for example, there's a huge problem with um, a fish called a uh, rock bass. Uh, they were brought here at the same time as all the other basses were. And those guys become problematic because they're, they're breeding to a level now where they're starting to compete with game fish for food. And so even though they're fun to catch, they're not a salmon, they're not a bass. And so in that sense, it's, neg it's a negative impact. So it's considered invasive. For personally, I think almost every fish anyone in the state can name is probably invasive. Rainbow trout, brown trout, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, bluegills, pumpkin seeds, crappies, white perch, all those guys are in, you know, we have about 12 native fishes and the rest are all, we're 48 years now, the rest are all brought in. Um, and they brought carp in as a food fish and never caught on and those are invasive now, so. What do those native fish actually eat? What are they? Yeah, so the native fishes, they're gonna, so like lake trout's native forage is um, yellow perch, right? Another native fish. And a lot of people think that rainbow smelts are the, are the main forage for lake trout, but rainbow smelts are also an introduced fish. They are a sea-run animal that were landlocked, same as salmon. Or All right, so that's it. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Special thanks to Sammy Groves for doing the audio engineering for the Tin Mountain piece. Big thanks to Tin Mountain Conservation Center for letting me talk. And, of course, thank you for listeners for listening. Thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode of the Fish Nurse Podcast. And uh, that's, I think that's all my thanks for today. So we're done with our thank yous. So until next time, follow the code of the Fish Nerd, spawn early, spawn often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached and swim against the current every chance you get. I forgot to thank Diana's Bath Salts for making our news theme and Wally Pleasant for doing our show theme. Fish Nerds out. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, Fish Nerds. Fish Nerds. Fish Nerds. It's a podcast. Just for the halibut! Fry it in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish Nerds. Fish Nerds. Fish Nerds. It's a podcast.